Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. How to Beat Trump is a new book by a guy named Mark Halpern. I don't know if you know him, but if you follow politics, you probably do. He and another guy he worked with uh, named uh, Heilman, Halpern Heilman, they were a big political pundit duo for a while, and they wrote probably the most famous political book of the last half century, Game Change, which was made into a movie. Um, but Halpern's really good. He's one of my favorite pundits. And he's in this book, he talked to, I think, 50 different top political strategists in the country, Republicans and Democrats, on what it would take to beat Trump, with the vast majority of saying Trump is most likely going to win. That's the most likely outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and Halpern's thing is to just figure out what's happening. He's not an advocate for either side, and he's super uh, clear-eyed and smart and perceptive, and his contacts are, are great. He's also uh, the only person I was watching on national TV back in 2016 who was saying, I think Trump could win, as he was surrounded by New York Beltway people who thought it was just laughable. Right, and mocked him for R- it remember at the, times. Remember the Huffington Post covered Trump in the entertainment section mm-hmm. because yeah. they didn't think it was worth covering in the political section. That's some powerful stuff. Ooh. Maybe if you'd covered him in the political section, uh, your voters would have turned out. Anyway, if you're interested in politics at all, it's worth sitting through this segment because by the time we get to the end of this, Halpern says some things that are a different way to look at the whole deal. Keeping in mind that this is a, a couple of small chunks of the Extra Large podcast we just uh Recorded, which you can check out wherever podcasts are given away for free. Here's a little of our conversation. The biggest worry of all that the Democrats have, along with not starting soon enough to think about the general election, which is disqualifying the Democrats. Disqualifying. That's a heck of a term, not just a bump in the road. (laughs) Disqualifying. George Bush disqualified John Kerry for a lot of Americans. They made him a flip-flopper, unacceptable. Barack Obama disqualified. Uh, uh, Mitt Romney by saying he only cared about the rich people in this country, Bain Capital, etc. Bill Clinton disqualified Bob Dole. You go back and look at those three guys, all reelected the year before the election, and look at what the press said about their chances for re-election. Much grimmer than what people say about Trump, despite Trump's low approval rating. Uh, one, year, uh, one year before the general election, uh, 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 when Obama was running for election the New York Times Magazine ran a cover story titled, Is Obama Toast? And their scientific formula said that Obama's chances for being reelected were 17%. A year later, he was overwhelmingly reelected because he disqualified Mitt Romney. Not for everybody, but for enough people that he was able to get reelected. And that is the theory of the case of the Trump campaign. And that is why the Democrats I talked to for how to beat Trump say, you can only beat Trump if you are strong enough to survive hundreds of millions of dollars of negative ads Trump's Twitter feed, Trump's press conferences, in which he will try to do to the Democrat who is nominated what he did to Jeb Bush, what he did to John Kasich, what he did to Chris Christie, what he did to Hillary Clinton, which is destroy them politically. Make make fun of them physically. (laughs) Whatever it takes, physically, mentally. I mean, Trump is the master. You know, the single greatest skill you can have as a presidential candidate is the ability to define your opponent on your terms. And that is Donald Trump's single greatest skill. I want to clarify something. That that was the back half of an absolutely blockbuster statement. He said that there are three issues that Bernie and uh, Elizabeth Warren have touted, and to some extent Joe Biden, that are utterly disqualifying. The American people will not vote for a person who advocates 
open borders with absolutely no criminality crossing the border, health care for illegal aliens, that issue alone is disqualifying. And uh, the third one was uh, removal of all private insurance, just outlawing it and making it all mandatory government insurance. He said any of those three stances are disqualifying. And several of the lead Democrats have embraced them. So they're done. Joe went on to challenge Halpern for his predictions. If you were offered a $1,000 bet on any of the Democratic candidates at this point, would you throw that $1,000 down, or is it just way too unclear at this point? And you don't more, don't name any names if you don't want. Yeah, it's, it's, it's more unclear than it's been for either party in my career. Uh, I, think, I think if I had to pick someone today, it'd be Elizabeth Warren, but... I don't think she's been tested yet, and I think over the next couple months she will be tested. And I'm, I'm based on how she's performed when she's been pressured, like with her problems with her talking about her Native American heritage. I'm not sure she'll pass that. God, and she's so. got no chance of winning in a general election. I just, I can't imagine well, anybody winning who's for health care, free health care for illegals. I just can't imagine that winning. That, that is, that is a, the view of Donald Trump, and is the view of Nancy Pelosi. And when those two agree, generally, I would think it's probably true. So. You're right, and 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 you've got a, a, you know a lot of the leading candidates have that position. So I don't think it's clear who the nominee will be. If I had to pick today, I'd say Elizabeth Warren, but but I I don't feel strongly about it. I think I think uh, I think Sanders and Buttigieg could be the nominee. I've been very down on Biden's candidacy from the beginning, and nothing I've seen has has caused me to alter that. He still does well in the national polls, but. I think I think he's more likely to finish third or fourth or even fifth in Iowa than he is first or second, and wow. I think that'll do a lot of damage to his candidacy. Wow. He thinks Biden will think finish fourth or fifth. Could finish fourth or fifth in Iowa. Oh. Well, then he's done. I mean, that'd just be the end, right? You'd oh, have to pull yeah. the plug. It'd be humiliating. Oh. I mean, he might. Well, no, they'd pour all their resources into South Carolina for a last-ditch effort to, to somehow. A sad know. end to a long political career. Nah, I would call that accurate, yes. Now, what about you-know-who lurking in the darkness, ready to burst back onto the scene? And how does Hillary uh, relate to the field as it stands now? What are the chances she gets in? Uh, more good stuff with uh, Mark Halperin. There are a lot of crap political books that get written when the, the season is hot and they know they can sell them. This isn't one of them. This is really, really a good book, and I've always really liked your punditry, but we can't let you go. Without asking you about Hillary, what's the chance she gets in? Her answer the other day sounded so Clinton-esque to me, where she, had, she oh said, lots of people have been asking me, <laughs> and I'm not going to rule it out now. Not ruling it out now sounds like a yes to me. She said, and I quote, many, many, many people are pressuring her. Triple many. <laughs> yeah. Look, I was struck by that same thing, too. A lot of times people say, oh, a lot of people are asking me to run for, you know, senator or governor or president, and they just, you know, basically their 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 bookkeeper and their daughter is asking them to run. Right. She's being asked, she's being asked by a lot of people. It's the most undercovered story in, in, the, in politics today. The panic that exists in the Democratic Party over the concern that Sanders or Warren or Buttigieg will be the nominee, and they'll and it'll happen in the blink of an eye. One of them will win both Iowa and New Hampshire, say, and basically lock things up, and the party will be in a panic because they don't think that those people can win. Schumer doesn't think they can win. Pelosi doesn't think they can win. So many of the other the, the, the donors, so many of the other elected officials. So 
that's why you see Deval Patrick getting in the race. That's why you see Michael Bloomberg, you know, thinking about getting in the race. And that's why people are saying to Hillary Clinton, look, you can raise the money. You know how to do this. You got more votes than the popular vote last time. You could you could correct the mistakes you made. In Does she believe her own lies? Does she believe any of her own lies about it was stolen by Russia or it's about misogyny? Does she recognize uh, she's a bad candidate and people don't like her? <laughs> She, she, she. I think she believes all those things. She knows she's not a great candidate, but I believe, and I think she has some cause to think so, that she was hurt by by what Putin did, without a doubt. But, but, uh, you know, I, I, th- I think I've said this before. I think that history is going to show that that the, what what helped Donald Trump more than anything else was the decision, the misguided and in some ways selfish decisions that Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden made to decide to run for president. Neither of them should have run. They both they both were, were such obviously manifestly bad presidential candidates. Hillary Clinton allowed Trump to win. And Biden, even if he's not the Democratic nominee, he kept other establishment candidates from getting in the race, allowing Warren and Sanders and Buttigieg to, to, to rise up. And now it may be too late for any other establishment candidate to, to get into the game. And the party may be left because because of Joe Biden's decision with somebody who can't win a general election because of the, those positions we talked about. Joe, you don't have to do this. Barack Obama. This. Right. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to do this. And, and and he was talked out of it before. And just look at his record. I mean, he ran in in, in, in 2008 and he got 1% in Iowa. And he, he can't. 1%? He was well, he <laughs> now was that's well a stat. Known. You know, and, and so, yeah, you know, I don't, I think, I think Barack Obama and Bill Clinton agree with what I said Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer think. These guys can't win. So the three that are nominatable are unelectable. According to Democrats, according to Barack Obama, according to Bill Clinton, according to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Right. That's incredible. And the one who is electable is not nominatable. Joe Biden. And he's barely a electable man. I've been saying this from the beginning. He's a terrible candidate. So so that's what the donors and the power brokers are trying to figure out. What do we do with that riddle? Right. Deval Patrick. Yeah, I don't know enough about it. Deval and Amy. That is something, though. Wow, no wonder there's there's panic behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting. You know, it's, it's not shocking. I just... I guess I just thought maybe the country's moved so far I didn't recognize it. When they all stood up on the debate stage and raised their hand and said, oh, yeah, free health care for illegals, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were as shocked as me, mm-hmm. apparently. Right. They had the same reaction I had. What? Oh, no. You can't win with that. Right. Right. That's interesting. We, hey. ta- we talked to Mark Halpern for about an hour, and the podcast is pretty good if you like that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Smart guy. Calls it like he sees it. Uh, really enjoyed the chat, and we're going to be uh, talking to him on a semi-regular basis, particularly after the holidays as the uh, election thing ramps up. Cool. Yeah, looking forward to that. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Oh, my God, I just realized I left my coffee in the in the office. I don't have my coffee. Michael, soundly, Joe doesn't have his coffee. <laughs> wow. That what was... the? How did I forget? After all these junkies that I am, I... Dang it. Yeah, that one's completely different. Uh, it has a different timber than the other. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's the timber. <laughs> you must listen for it. So there's a new Epstein story I just saw when I walked in. He had broken bones in his yep. neck. Mm-hmm. 
more consistent with a homicide than a suicide, according to one person who... You got it. You might talk to a different expert who says the opposite, but... Yeah, what does that guy know? Yeah, let's not let him get in the way of our fun. <laughs> I don't know anything about this, but I wouldn't expect you to break bones in your neck when you hang yourself like that. But uh, you know, what do I know? Uh, Nothing. Uh, yeah, I, uh, this is all getting a little silly. But... Well, the, the one expert said it's more consistent with homicide than suicide. Was he drunk? And there was a story yesterday that the 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 reason they moved the guy out of his cell, or he, they took him off suicide watch, he wanted off suicide watch, is the guy attacked him in his cell. That's how he ended up on the floor in the fetal position. Oh, with uh, marks on his neck. Yeah. Oh, because when you're on suicide watch, one of the things is a forced cellmate. Yeah, right? and yeah. the cellmate attacked him. Now, that, that story was in the New York Post yesterday. Again, you never know what's true and what's not in the modern era. Maybe he got his bones in his neck broken then. I don't know. Right, right. And maybe he had it coming, too. What do you suppose the thread count is in these sheets? They are so rough. Can you believe how rough these sheets are? Is this Egyptian cotton? All right, that's it. <laughs> and, of course, we have to talk about the painting he had hanging in his home that became mm. uh, we all became aware of yesterday. That's our headline. Bill Clinton in a blue dress. Posing provocatively with a come hither look in his eyes. Has, has everybody, <laughs> great Scott, has everybody seen this painting? Painting by now that Epstein ha- had hanging prominently in his home. Have you I, seen this, Marshall? No. Nope. Take a look at this. Let me see. And it was it was prominent, like you walked into the house and you would see that giant painting hanging Whoa. there. What is that? <laughs> Bill Clinton lounging in a chair in a blue dress and red high heels. Lounging provocatively. What kind yes. of a painting yes. is that? Yes. <laughs> wow. What does that mean? Pointing his finger at you. Yeah. I want you. Yes. What does that possibly mean? I, 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 I don't know. I'm just disturbed. I don't know. Does anybody have a guess? Does, Look, looking at that painting has made me asexual. Does anybody have even a guess what that means? What does it mean? It means something different to everyone who views it, Jack. That's what art is. Yes. What does it mean to you? That's the question. It means he's got dirt on a lot of people. (laughs) I don't know what that means to me. Hey, what, the dress off the shoulder there? Oh, my God. It's it's like in the movie Titanic, and he's telling Leo DiCaprio to paint him like one of his French girls. Right. Holy cat. So, the blue dress, is that a Monica Lewinsky reference? Oh, Oh, clearly. Oh, yeah. Clearly. Okay. Oh, yeah. Think about it. Think about what? Yeah. Think about what you're looking at. (laughs) Yeah. We'll post it at armstrongandgetty.com. God. Uh, my only question is, are there reprints available? Oh, that's going to become... Can I get a framed print? You can get them on canvas so it looks, you know, like the original. <laughs> that is going to become a popular poster. Oh, have, yeah. Have the memes begun with the comments on uh, below them? Because I want to I want to see what they've begun. <laughs> I want to see what people have come up with for that. Have you just uh, met the internet? <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I can't even imagine why you would commission a painting like that or, or someone presented it to him and he thought, fantastic. I'm going to hang it where everybody can see it in my $50 million apartment or whatever the heck that was. Right. Yeah, and it's big, too. Yeah. It's, yes. It's it's like, this is what I'm really proud of. This right. Bill Clinton lounging on a chair in a dress and high heels painting. Jack, we call it a focal point. <laughs> no it's clearly, clearly the focal point as you enter the apartment. But the blue dress, if it's a Monica Lewinsky thing, so it's got nothing to do with the fact that they were buds and flew on the plane together and, or and does partied it? with chicks? Or does it? It's the many sides of Bill Clinton. What it's To me, it's a, look what I can do, 
even Bill Clinton can't get me to take this down. Right, this is—it's it, a pure power move. That's, oh, that's pretty good. interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. I can mock a popular president in my fabulous home, where many of the most powerful people in the world come. Where that very person may have come through this entryway and looked at this, and I don't have to worry about it for a second. Wow. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah. wait yeah. a minute! That—that that actually makes sense yeah. to me. Wow, because well, it's the darkest possible view of it. Well, why wouldn't you take the darkest view of that guy? He's right. a dark person. Right. You know, we're starting an Armstrong and Getty uh, book club podcast or video cast thing. It's uh, going to debut, I think, next month. Uh, fascinating books and egg-headed commentators. Uh, I like this even better. That Armstrong and Getty discuss art. That is pretty it's good. That, that might fit in with the guy's whole motive. I have a painting prominently displayed that mocks the president and powerful people come into my house and I show it to him. I, I would wonder. also I would also like to know when that was commissioned slash put up, right? Was it when he was still in office? It, well, clearly it was after that, right? Because it references the blue dress and all the scandal and things. If, well, well, that was when he was in. They could have uh, painted it real quick. Right, well, right. Well, it's an older Bill Clinton, though, definitely. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. The gray hair. Yep. Huh. Uh <laughs> I'll be darned. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the stuff. Armstrong and Getty. Yo, yo, yo. You picked a good hour of the Armstrong and Getty show to tune in because we have Tim the lawyer here. Tim Sandifer has been joining our show now for... 13 years. Great yeah, really. Scott. Wow. You were a child then. I can't believe it's been that long. I was just... Uh, I was just looking at uh, some things that feel like yesterday and were actually a long time ago. My wife and I have decided to start watching Star Trek The Next Generation on Netflix because she missed about half the show when it was originally on. Good goals. the first episode of that show was 32 years ago now. Oi. Which means that uh, that the show was a lot closer to the original series than we are to that show now. Oh, that's an interesting. Was, the original Star Trek was only 20 years old in that show. First uh, air. Tim, aside from being a Star Trek historian, is the <laughs> vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, Tim Sandifer. So, uh, Tim, we know you're working on some really exciting and, and fun stuff right now, and we want to talk about that. But we have a couple of general constitution-y questions. All right. That we wanted to chat. I wonder chat what about. You're, you just because you're a guy who's read a lot about the founding and the Constitution and all this. Oh, that's what you do. Um, um, what are your thoughts on impeachment in general? Not the particulars sure. of this one, but just the removal of a president from office. I think that the, the founding fathers expected us to use impeachment a lot more, a lot more than we do. Hmm. And of course, not just presidents, but judges also. And uh, they would be shocked that in the history of the United States, there have been so very few impeachments of people who have abused or arguably abused their offices because impeachment is a political process. Impeachment is a constitutional political process. It really drives me crazy that partisans in the media refer to impeachment as a coup or as trying to undo the election. No, impeachment is a political process that if the... If they're, the constituents want it, then they should get it, and that's that's what the system is designed for. And and we have come close, but not actually convicted presidents in in the impeachment process because there wasn't actually that kind of political pressure for it. So now judges, I don't know, I don't know what how many judges are judges for yeah, life. Do I? Uh, are a lot of judges judges for oh, life? Or is that uh, just the Supreme all, Court? All Article Three federal court judges are so judges for life. The, the article for well, impeaching judges them, for good behavior, I should say. The article, the argument for impeaching them makes a little more sense than that. You know, it's the only way you can get them out of there. Yeah. If you think they're corrupt. Right. Whereas with a president uh, or an elected official, you can wait till the next election. And it does happen that that uh, uh, federal judges are impeached, but 
you know, when you can when you just look at the numbers, it's just not plausible that uh, we've been using impeachment as often as we ought to. Mm. So you think it would have been more? Um, I, I wonder if maybe we don't go through a period here where we just uh, constantly are impeaching. Yeah, no, I, and I and I don't see anything inherently wrong with that because the system is supposed to balance parties against each other in order to protect the the individual. You know, the whole system of checks and balances is is designed to keep the political branches at each other's throats. And that's a blessing. That's a benefit to us. You know, people talk about gridlock. They use the term gridlock. I mean, gridlock is a feature, not a bug. The the system is designed to to counteract each branch so that the people can go out there about their business in peace and safety. You want an efficient government where these the the fools who are in office can get what they want done immediately. That would be a horrifying alternative. No, the the we're better off with the political parties duking it out and accomplishing nothing by the end of the day because then we can go about our our lives pursuing happiness. And, and and being with our families and running our businesses and, and minding our own business. I mean, that's what the, the Constitution was designed to do. So there's a lot of discussion about what's an impeachable offense. We started our talk show roughly coincident with the, the whole Clinton impeachment mess. And there's, there's bribery and treason and high crimes and misdemeanors, and everybody argues about what that means. Um, I understand they were vague, so it would cover things they couldn't, anticipate but what about incompetence what if you just think and a lot of people think the president sucks that's kind of what that's kind of what they did with andrew johnson was just the idea he sucks let's throw a whole bunch of stuff at him and he really did i mean he really should have been thrown out of office no uh, absolutely incompetence is an impeachable offense of course it is it has to be you couldn't possibly have a constitutional system where a president, let's say, in the first year of office goes crazy or something and just decides to randomly do all sorts of terrible things and there's nothing you can do about it. Of course, impeachment exists in order to remove people who are unfit for office. Are you talking about, like, switching us to the metric system or something crazy like that? (laughs) True horrors, yes. (laughs) My car gets 15 rods to the hogshead, and that's the way I like it. The, the uh, impeach or I mean uh, uh, gross incompetence is an impeachable offense because it's a political crime. It's a danger, a, a serious threat to the safety and security of the people of the United States if the president is dangerously incompetent. And so, of course, that is an impeachable offense. But they specifically did not go with the term maladministration or whatever they were talking about at the time. That's true. But also, you know what. What the founders chose not to include is of limited value when interpreting the Constitution, because there's lots of stuff they chose not to include. And there's a lot of reasons why they might have chosen not to include something. So perhaps they didn't include terms like maladministration because they thought that was covered sufficiently by the language that they did use. So it's always of limited value to say, well, the founders chose not to include something. Maybe that's a helpful argument. Maybe not. But what we do know is that historically speaking and just as a matter of common sense, Removing a person from office because that person is dangerously incompetent is obviously within what the founding fathers intended when they wrote the Constitution. I'm not saying that that's the the situation today. I'm talking about what the founding fathers thought at the time they were writing the Constitution. Tim Sandifer is the VP for litigation at the Goldwater Institute. Uh, The Second Amendment is also another aspect of the Constitution, part of the Constitution that seems to vex people for because it's it's vague. Um, Would the Constitution have been better if they'd made it two or three times as long, (laughs) or shorter? 
so at the at the writing of the Constitution, there were a lot of people who were opposed to including a Bill of Rights, including James Madison and James Wilson, who were two, probably the two smartest guys at the Constitutional Convention, and Alexander Hamilton, too. They were opposed to including a Bill of Rights at all because they said, look, the Constitution only allows the government to do the things that we've listed on this piece of paper. And that's <laughs> it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's it. They, they, all they can do is what's listed here. And if we put in there, in, if we write a Bill of Rights that say, by the way, you have the right to freedom of speech and the right to freedom of property, blah, 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 then what's going to happen is people are going to forget that the federal government only has the power to do the things that are listed on this piece that's of paper. That's a pretty good argument, it and turns out. That's right. If you leave something out, people will think that you purposely left it out. There so, you go. So they said if we write a Bill of Rights that leaves out that you have a right to run barefoot through sprinklers on a hot summer day, you might have people out there who say, well, you don't have a right to run barefoot through sprinklers on a hot summer day because it's not in the Constitution. And sure enough, that is today how yeah. a large number of people read the Constitution. So it, it's arguable that we would have been better off without a Bill of Rights because that would have forced people to face the fact that the federal government has limited powers. That I, is really interesting. I don't by itself buy that argument, but it's an interesting argument. Is anything uh, in the Constitution about becoming the world's largest insurance company? Um, redistributor of wealth? And there is nothing in the Constitution that authorizes the federal government to do those things. No, no, I thought not. All right, then. So uh, let's talk about what you're doing these days. What, uh, what well, are you we, hot to trot about? We have a big case we're going to be asking the Supreme Court to take this month. Uh, that involves whether lawyers can be forced to join bar associations. And this is a this is a very important issue. So for a long time now, lawyers have been forced not just to pass the bar exam. I'm not talking about the bar exam. You have to pass the exam and you get licensed, you get sworn in, then you're a lawyer. That's a different thing. A lot of states, about 20 states, I'm sorry, about 30 states today, now force lawyers to join bar associations, which are private clubs. They're basically labor unions for lawyers. Are you in one? And I am a member of the Arizona State Bar Association. They call it the Arizona State Bar. But it's a it's a private trade organization that I'm required every year to pay $500 or so to. And they spend this money on political activities. They lobby the legislature. They take political positions on things. State bar associations do this all over the country. Uh, even though I disagree with that, they're forcing me to subsidize political speech that I disagree with. And you disagree we, with some of their positions. Oh, yes. And this is now you might think, you know, and whether you did or not, I'm not sure you should be forced to uh, subsidize. Oh, absolutely. This. And, and listeners might think, well, who cares about the First Amendment rights of lawyers themselves? And this is very important because bar associations have a lot of political influence with state legislatures because state bars lobby and they get a lot of influence and they get listened to a lot at state at the state level. And I, in the media, I've never noticed that in Corruptifornia. Well, <laughs> and, in the, and in the media view of it, the media regularly throws around whichever bar association believes this as if, well, then that settles it. Yeah, as if that's they speak for the entire legal right, profession right. and they don't. So we have sued over this issue in several states, in Louisiana, in Oklahoma, in Oregon. There are cases going on in Wisconsin and Texas, and we're doing a case in North Dakota that we're asking the U.S. Supreme Court to take and to hold that lawyers cannot be forced to join bar associations and subsidize their political activities, just like the Supreme Court has already said, you cannot be forced to join a labor union and subsidize its political activities against your will. How hard is that test, the bar? Uh, the bar exam itself, that it is, it's the, certainly the hardest test I ever took. How long does it take you? Well, these kids Days today, or hours or? these kids today have no idea how good they have it. <laughs> when I took the bar exam, the California bar exam is a three-day exam. Three days. The, the, and the Arizona bar exam was and still is a two-day exam. I believe California is now only two days, but it is a very demanding test. 
And um, uh, could you pass it today, or is it the sort of thing you need to study up for at that time? I would, I would have to study up for it. And I was in a bad situation because I took it in California 15 years ago, and then I had to retake it in Arizona two years ago when oh. I moved there. So it is a, uh, it, yeah, it was tough to go, have to go back over that stuff and relearn it. Is it, is it like word searches, two pictures, what's the difference between these two <laughs> pictures sort of things? Well, the answer is no, but actually to, to get into law school, you ha- have to take another test the LSAT, and the LSAT actually does have something kind of like that. The LSAT exam is a lot of logic puzzles. It's stuff like, you know, you have a chicken and a wolf and a bag of seed, and you have to cross the the river in a canoe, and you uh-huh. can only have two in the same canoe at the same time. Oh, that, really? that kind of question really? is on the LSAT I, exam. I drown. Do you have to go to law school to take the bar? Uh, not in every state. But in some in states, you just any rando could uh, study up there on their are, own. And, there are some states. That's why Lincoln did it, didn't he? Just study up yeah, on their own. Yeah, randos like Lincoln. <laughs> California, <laughs> Jack. California is, the is I think, the only state where you can take the bar exam without having gone to law school. Mm. And every few, year, a few people pass the bar exam having studied on their wow. own. Very few. Wow. And, of course, it's very hard to get a job sure. if you do that. Yeah. But it is possible. But and I can start suing people, and that'd be fun. In Hell some yeah. states, if you graduate from law school, you are automatically a member of the bar in a few oh, states. Gotcha. Among the fine uh, books that Tim Sandifer has written, uh, the recent The Ascent of Jacob Bronowski, uh, which we talked to Tim about on a podcast, right? That's right. At some point. Uh, yeah, very, very good. Uh, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, which is absolutely terrific. The Permission Society, which we helped inspire, finally inspired something positive in the world, um, and The Right to Earn a Living, one of my faves about economic freedom, which is uh, another forgotten notion. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. On this subject of cell phones and school, as it's back to school time, we're doing our back to school shopping this afternoon with the kids. That's always oh, a very exciting. exciting thing. New, new pair of shoes. Oh, God. I remember that. They made me run so much faster than oh, my old yeah. shoes. And cornering, please. <laughs> and, uh, you know, pick out the shirt you're going to wear for first day picture. Right. That I will take. Um,. But uh, the idea of cell phones in class, which I can't even believe is even an option. Apparently it is. This text, I was going to school to teach at the secondary level, middle school slash high school. I was told during a classroom management course that you have to be careful taking phones because if the child claims you broke the phone or looked at it, a parent can take legal action, and it's your word against a class of students that don't care if you keep your job. Oh, my. The best suggestion was having the kids set their phones along the whiteboard where the pens go with their names over it, so you, so you as the teacher never touch them. So you make them, you have them go over and carry them and set them down so you never physically touch them. Boy, the phenomenon of teachers, including college professors, being terrified of their little charges is really something. Yeah. And, and their parents. Yeah, boy, oh boy. They're, we've heard that from so many teachers, so many college teachers, just... You just live in fear of offending a little snowflake, and they will make a big deal of it and paint you as a racist and a fascist and a misogynist and the rest of it, and that becomes your life, hearings and reports and the rest of it. So you think, I don't need that headache. Right. And I was saying, you know, somebody will claim they uh, they can't get a hold of their mom when they hurt their ankle, so they sue. You say, you got to let them have phones. We got this text. They just banned phone use at my kid's middle school. Thanks to a cyberbullying incident, so the lawsuits work both ways. Well, good. The lawyers are fighting it out, and that's how we decide whether or not 
it makes sense for kids to sit in class and stare at their phone. Well, luckily, America's attorneys are just in it for the justice. <laughs> Not just making money off of both That's sides. That's troubling. Uh, you know what's troubling is me impugning Jer- uh, uh, Jim- James Earl Carter, Jimmy Carter. Um, you joined in, but I was the, the ringleader in the abuse, and I apologize for it. I was it. just trying to be cool because the popular kid said it. Thank you. Um, Jimmy Carter did not usher in the national 55-mile-per-hour. Was it Ford? It was Ford. Oh. The ironically named Ford. He signed it into law in the Federal Aid Highway Amendments of 1974. Uh, that was signed on January 4th, 1975. William, we appreciate your input and are stunned by the thoroughness of your research. That whole era, just that that middle part of the seventies. I guess it was post Vietnam and Watergate, where we were really on our heels oh, as yeah. a country. And the, and uh. you know the steel mills closing, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Read the books, watch the movies, whatever. Just all that stuff happening at the same time. We were just on our heels as a country. We we're just kind of weak and soft and uh. rampant inflation. Mortgages were running at eighteen percent. Eighteen percent. Yeah, it's hard to even imagine. Yeah, yeah, and and meanwhile, you get the uh, energy crisis going on, so we got to putt along at fifty-five miles per hour. And Jimmy Carter was there in his sweater, and this is what I was thinking about, telling us to like run our house at forty degrees in the winter time because <laughs> we're a sad, weak country, right? And then we recaptured our glory. How? When? Who? Give you a hint. His name is Ron, and he was the governor of Corruptifornia before it came the became the unicornian fantasy land that is today. So I got the top ten most annoying things you do. Me personally? According to other people. Well, people in general. I've been waiting for this moment. Now, there's, this is a pretty good list. <laughs> I mean, the list has 50. We're just trying yeah. to narrow it down to the top. I probably should scroll through and find all the best ones, but I'll just do the top ten. Tapping your feet. Why is it people in offices forget their manners with such shocking frequency? Tapping your foot on your desk does more to create distracting noise, blah, blah, blah. Because they're not aware of it. Yeah. My daughter is a, uh, a serial foot tapper and knee jiggler. She's uh, she's twitchy like, like her old man. I sit perfectly still. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, looking at your phone when you're talking to someone in person? Oh, yeah, yeah that's terrible. Uh, uh, stop it. Counterpoint, be more interesting. <laughs> Touche. That's funny. Uh, number eight, talking ad nauseum about how busy you are. <laughs> That's true. Here, for some reason, hearing somebody else talk about how busy they are, is there any? Nobody enjoys that. Is there an upside on either either side? No, be um, brief. Yeah, running around, you know how it is. There you go. Not returning your shopping cart. Eh, that one doesn't bother me. Well, I do. Leave it in the them. parking space, though. That's annoying. How friggin' lazy are you? Walk it over there. Singing along to a song like you're trying to win a Grammy. <laughs> if Don't Stop Believing comes on the radio and you're singing at the top of your lungs, you're annoying people. Okay. Oh, boy. How many people do that? Actually, I ran into somebody not that long ago who did it. It was weird. I didn't even know how to react. They were just singing like full volume. Am I supposed to watch this whole performance, or can I walk away now, or what's going on? <laughs> could they hold a tune? Yeah, they could okay. sing, but still, it's just weird. And they're, like, doing body movements and singing just full-on, like, performance. That's a kind of person. I've known those people. <laughs> Very <laughs> exuberant cheerleader Is types. Is it mandatory that I stand here and let you finish the song? Oh, People no. want to play to their strengths. If I, I look like Dwayne Johnson, I'd wear nothing but tank tops. Yeah, I guess that's it. Number five, refusing to walk single file on a crowded sidewalk. Or going left. 
What is the matter? You meet somebody in a hallway, in an airport, on a staircase, and you go left. We're Americans. We go right. <laughs> if you're a Briton, go left. What are you, Limey? Go right. Jamie, the airports make me crazy. Everybody's walking chaotically, running into each other. Y'all going that way? Go to your right. You're going to everywhere. would flow like, oh, my God, it'd be great. Wow. Do you do that rant as you're walking through the airport? Yes, I do. Pointing out people, you go to the left. And I have a megaphone. And they say, sir, you've got to stop. And I say, I say, there are no laws against megaphones. To their faces. <laughs> That's why I've been banned from most airports. Uh, number two was I take not, Greyhound a lot. Number two is not standing to one side on an escalator. Similar sort of situation, really. And then right. number one was humble bragging. People are annoyed by humble bragging, so oh, keep that in mind all day that's long. That's omnipresent it's these so days. It's so obvious when it's happening, too. Stop it. Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show.